Sean doesn't know is that Nina Simone song, to my knowledge, has only been used for one other worship service in this congregation. That Nina Simone song, Mississippi God Daniel, was sung in the first worship service after the Supreme Court decision that got rid of the uh, pre-requirement and pre-clearance for voting rights laws from a very similar and less radical Supreme Court. So it really was very moving for me to hear it sung today, and thank you. So we're once again here talking about a Supreme Court decision. I really wish we didn't have to do this on Sunday morning. Why am I here talking about it? Because it's a decision that once again challenges us all to think about what we really mean by the word justice and what is a matter of justice. Unitarian Universalist principles talk about justice. We seek justice and equity in human relations. We affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person. We support one another in spiritual growth and our search for meaning. And in the eighth principle, we seek to end structures and cultural practices that are part of white supremacy. And as I was struggling with my own anger and grief and every other emotion, when I stopped to think, the shortest phrase that connects the injustice of this decision to our search for truth, for dignity, for justice, is autonomy, specifically bodily autonomy. This Supreme Court, after deciding that public health during a pandemic does not curtail bodily autonomy, this court has decided that pregnancy does end bodily autonomy. There is no constitutional right, according to them, for specific types of health care for a pregnant body. So medical decisions making it curtailed can be decided by the state. Bodily autonomy for pregnant bodies is not in the Constitution, is not part of the right of privacy, is not part of the historical rights or enumerated rights of the Constitution, and is not a right gained through any of the, amendment, of the amendments, including the 14th Amendment, according to this opinion. Instead, Justice Toledo relied on the writings of a 17th century jurist who believed that women were essentially part of the physical property of their husbands and had no right to bodily autonomy within marriage at all. According to this ruling, bodily autonomy ends with pregnancy. Anyone who can become pregnant could lose their autonomy under this ruling. The right to make decisions about their bodies and medical care and instead be subject to whatever laws their state passes around medical care. Women, trans men, non-binary folks, anyone with functioning organs that produce or house eggs, all lose bodily autonomy under this ruling. I may mention women, especially for specific stories, but the issue of abortion as part of reproductive justice is not just about cis women, it's about many more people. I grew up expecting to have bodily autonomy, including around whether or not to continue any pregnancy. 
I grew up in New York State, where the state was not trying to obey that right. I was in one of the safest states. But my mom told me about the times before Roe, when without the legal right to medical care, pregnant people sought out other means, often dangerous means to end the pregnancy. My mom was a nurse, and she told stories about when she and her friends were in nursing school, and someone would approach one of them about obtaining medical instruments, something that might work well enough, that they might survive. It might be okay. My mom was not very politically active, but she marched to call for legalization here in New York State, which did happen before the Roe decision came down. And she told me and my sister stories so that while we lived in the world that was part of Roe, we would understand why legal access and the right to make our own decisions was so important. Oh, I forgot to introduce myself earlier. I'm the Reverend Beth Putnam, and I use she, her pronouns. And as some of you know, I'm a hospital chaplain. I've served in the VA for over a decade. But before that, I did my first residency at Albert Einstein Hospital in Philadelphia. One of the issues that is less spoken about that is part of this whole mess is that so much is affected by the access to care and hospital resources and whether a person has a place to go to get care. When I was in Philadelphia, several hospitals had closed their labor and delivery rooms altogether. Einstein by then was delivering between 15 and 20% of all babies born in the city of Philadelphia because there was nowhere else to go. But that also meant that it was one of the few places that pregnant people could go for medical checkups and medical care and have a provider they might actually have for their delivery. So they gave all sorts of care there. And it's one of the places I learned that sometimes it all goes wrong. Some of you listening may have lost or ended a pregnancy, whether abortion or miscarriage, stillbirth or neonatal demise. I and we hold the pain of these losses and the long-standing grief that often remains. And I do want to share some of what I was honored to witness as I provided spiritual care and counseling. I can still feel how it felt to hold one woman, a stranger I had just met on my rounds in the hospital as she sobbed into my shoulder. The feel of her braids under my hands as I stroked her hair, offering some physical comfort in her grief. If you looked at the hospital records, it would say she had an elective abortion. And some of the staff treated her the way they thought that deserved. She had been over six months pregnant when her blood pressure went up and up, and they could not get it back down. The doctors told her she was at risk of having a stroke. She continued that pregnancy. And she prioritized her health and ended the pregnancy and sobbed on my shoulder 
She also cried from her sense of guilt because this pregnancy was not planned. And she had not been sure she wanted to continue the pregnancy. And as we talked, I reminded her she had made her choice. She had chosen to continue. And she continued until her body was not safe. She had intended to have that child. And I certainly agreed that she had the right to take care of her body and not to risk a stroke or incapacity or death. And I held her in my arms. And choice or bodily autonomy means getting to choose to prioritize one's own body, one's own health. And I fear for women like her across this nation, the, other, the others who no longer have that right, someone else will make that decision. And they may require that her life be at more significant risk. Possibly she's already had to have a stroke. Maybe they have to be on the border of actual death before they will act. And we don't know. I've talked about the disparities in hospital and healthcare availability and how it affects people's ability to make choices around their healthcare and around pregnancy. So different people are impacted very differently by this ruling. People of color will be affected by this loss of body autonomy very differently than people who are white. It is especially true of those who are African-American but other groups as well. People who were enslaved, regardless of gender, had a complete loss of bodily autonomy. They certainly did not have a constitutional protection for their bodies in any way. Another good reason why the original intent scale does not protect all of us. They have no, had no control over their bodies when it came to sex, pregnancy, or anything. It is a part of American medical history that the primary tools obstetricians still use were developed using women who were slaves as the test subjects. They actually removed the statue to the doctor who did that work from Central Park, I think about two years ago now. Up till then, they didn't have a statue to And other groups have in their history times where they had no say over their bodies, especially the women. And even though slavery and many other institutional forms of oppression ended, the health disparities continue. Things that are connected to poverty and geography, environment, and again, the access to doctors mean certain people face much greater risk in any pregnancy, much greater dangers. Some of our states, including Mississippi, already have an abnormally high maternal mortality rate. And all of this can get worse. And believe me, in Mississippi, it's definitely women of color who have a much higher maternal mortality rate already. It is not going to get better. So I grieve for the many lives that may yet and will be lost. 
And I know this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to share an anecdote to bring some hope and some empowerment and some action to the fore. Thankfully, New York State recently redid their state law to fully enshroud the broadest interpretation of Roe into law. They believed this could happen and they took action to ensure people in New York were protected. There are some states that meant to continue abortion access that did not get their old laws redone and may now be stuck. And there are many states that are moving to end all abortion access in their states altogether. So the one thing we can definitely do as a, a connection of mine who actually works at Planned Parenthood National said the very best thing that those with the means and the will can do to help people in other states is to give to an abortion access fund. These already existed because so many states already had restrictions. Giving a small amount as a recurring gift is best, but any donation will help. Abortion access funds do just what their name implies. They help people access abortions, including paying for travel, for child care, for hotels, whatever costs are needed to allow a person who wants an abortion to access safe care. And today's offering, and for all this month, the plate share is going to just such an abortion access fund. But I will also close with a personal story. A story I have used to bolster my own determination as I have watched the attack on abortion rights and access for about 40 years now. It is a story of deciding about what is essential and being real about politics and democratic processes in all of this. I was in graduate school, my second presidential election. I was sitting with my grandmother, my dad's mom, about 80 years old at the time. She and I had never discussed politics, but she was upset by this election. I can just remember her saying, I have voted Republican for my entire life, and now I have to vote for the Democrat because no man is going to tell me when I have to have a baby. This was the very first election after the Republican Party made opposition to abortion part of the official platform. For those of you who didn't know that that was a choice they actually made in my lifetime. And she took her lifelong political identity and weighed it against her bodily autonomy and chose her body. I can't say how anyone should vote, but please consider what is most important to you. Siding with the bodily autonomy for all people, for all healthcare decisions, I believe is at the core of justice. And I hope we may all find ways to bring a day when pregnancy does not end bodily autonomy. And we can once again protect the rights and dignity of all people as we continue a quest for some true reproductive justice. So may it be. Hi, everybody. My name is Ember Kelly. I'm the Director of Religious Education at the Fourth Universalist Society. And after each of our reflections, we like to record a little bit of a deeper dive into the themes of a service. And so 
This week we had a great message kind of reflecting on uh, how we are all feeling on the many things going on post the decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, and I uh, do also want to apologize that our tech had a little bit of issues during service. So if the video quality seemed just a little bit different um, and audio quality seemed a little bit off as compared with our normal, uh, we did our best to uh, improve it, uh, but we did have some tech issues this week. Uh, and so we apologize for that. But I am so excited to get to sit down with Reverend Beth, one of our affiliate ministers, uh, to talk a little bit about today's uh, service. Reverend Beth, good to be with you. Hey, thanks, Ember. Good to be back with you. So, you know, my, my general starting question is, um, what inspired the message? Um, I think maybe we, we have an idea. Um, but if you want to talk about, you know, how we've all been, how you've been feeling, how we've kind of all been feeling uh, in these past, past weeks. Yeah, well, I mean, even with sort of the warning that was coming when the decision was leaked, you know, forewarned does not stop the feelings when they come. And I had sort of the disbelief and the anger and the grief, you know, because I, like, you know, millions of other people in this country, you know, were directly affected by this. I technically do, you know, could be in a circumstance where I don't get to make medical decisions for myself as do so many other people. And it's really hard to be told you know, you don't have the basic rights to your own body and still feel like you actually have any freedom or basic justice. So it's, it's been a week. Right. When I even, um, I, I saw, I think it was on Twitter that I saw it, uh, was someone talking about that they have some sort of, uh, I think it was maybe an immune disease or some sort of uh, maybe a bone disease. I'm, I'm blanking on which disease it was, but they um, took a medicine um, that does a lot of different things, but apparently in some states, according to the new laws, it is, you know, an, an abortion inducing drug, even though it has like 20 other purposes and suddenly insurances are not covering, you know, life-saving medicine. It's, it's, it's kind of absurd how quickly it's already having these huge spiraling consequences, even just within the first week. I don't know if that's the same one I heard about, but it was, I heard um, there's one of the medications they use for rheumatism, even if it's, even if theoretically they're still gonna allow it to be prescribed, they're now monitoring what is the health status of the person who's it subscribed so if the person is someone who is of childbearing potential, they're like, no, you can't have it because you might be using it for an abortion. And it's just like, you know, and it's already happening. There's like, there's, cause there's this, there's this move to have people say, oh no, this is, we're just saying back to the States, things aren't changing. It's like, no, things already changed. There's already been one woman who had an ectopic pregnancy rupture while they doctors were sitting with the lawyers trying to figure out what they're allowed to do in their state. You know, it's, you know, and that's the thing is it's going to be in some of the states, the doctors are going to be sitting there going so afraid they're going to be sued for something or somebody's going to be held responsible for something, even if it's not actually an abortion. Right. And right. so it's not just abortion. It's, I'm sure there are going to be states they're going to go after the IUDs. They're already going after Plan B. 
in some states, even though that's not an abortificant at all, um, right. because the science, reason, good medicine, none of that has anything to say mm. in this legislation in some of these states. Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's a, uh, there was quite a, quite a many uh, bad decision uh, this week um, from the Supreme Court, whether um, the EPA giving them no authority when they were already, you know, not doing even the most as far as climate change, but now they literally have no authority. Um, and the prayer in school, you know, just it, it felt like bad decision after bad decision. But I know that in the uh, the opinion uh, about uh, that, that they mentioned like, oh, you know, you should also think about targeting contraception and gay marriage, you know, like it's, it's very clearly part of a, of an agenda um, towards dismantling many of these, these things because they see them as a threat to their worldview. Yeah. I mean, um, Clarence Thomas was the one who out and out said, uh, based on the precedent they set in this, the same theoretical thinking, I won't call it logic because there actually was no logic to what they said. But think, you know, if they were to hold this opinion and this approach to things in other precedent, they would get rid of Griswold, which is contraception, Oberfeld, which is LBTQ marriage. They'd also get rid of Lawrence, which is essentially any sex that's not man, woman, missionary. Um, <laughs> you know, in most of the country and give the states the rights to monitor what people do in their bedrooms. Right. All while claiming they're doing this in the name of liberty and non-government interference. As which is a... where the bad faith of the decision comes in. <laughs> it's not just a badly decided decision. It's like they're, in some of these cases, they literally have to swap the facts around and order the reverse of the facts. Right. So like in the decision on prayer in school, while they're looking at a photo of a man on the 50 yard line with a herd of high school students around him and he's holding a, a football helmet in the air with all the cameras from the media circus that he invited to this, the language in the decision is about his private right to prayer. Right and how that's not coercive. So it's like, it's not just, it's not the same as pastime as when it's, I really don't agree with how they're reading the law. It's like, they're literally misrepresenting the reality of the situation to him to reach the conclusion they want, right. even when it's completely contrary to the case in front of them. And once they're doing that, like we can't count on them. Right. to do what's right because they're doing the opposite so yeah. when i know you and i talked a little bit uh as we were preparing you know that that i come from the the very evangelical right-wing background and it you know as you you were talking about there how that they're just blatantly ignoring legal precedent like you know when we growing up it was always like can you believe those activist judges going against like what the law actually means and here they are you know doing the very thing that they but to me, it was really shocking. Um, I mean, it was almost equally shocking to see the school prayer case decided like the next day because growing up in the, in that movement, like that was the two biggest like goals. Like they had pretty much given up on gay marriage at the point. 
um, because they're like, okay, fine, it's it's kind of inevitable. We're not going to make this our main thing, but um, uh, but Rover get dismantling Rover's way to, or overturning it and getting getting God back in schools. Those were like the things that were always talked about in in the circles. And actually, it got much less attention, but there was an earlier decision that came down before, of course, the horrible decision for New York gun control. Though, thank goodness I did see uh, the the New York legislature has a plan that they think will meet can, uh, co- their new constitutional standards um, for uh, having, again, much more rigid gun control for New York City. Um, so they're moving forward with their plan. But there was another decision that was centered around schools in Maine where they got one of their other favorite things, which is um, essentially for years they've been coming after public education. And that's part of what all the, um, you know, folk, people have been focused on the way the language about CRT in schools and doing the book banning in schools is coming after either LGBT or racism education in schools, but they've really been coming for the public schools and wanting to essentially divert all the money. And if they can essentially strangle the public schools, they can. So in this decision for Maine, they essentially said the states have to fund the private religious education that parents want for their student, their children, if they want private religious education instead of public education, which in the past, it's always been, everybody supports public education. And if you wanna send your kids to private school, you just have to do that. And the state doesn't pay for that. And then the state doesn't regulate what they teach in those private schools. But now they want it both ways. They want the state to fund their private schools, and then they want total control over what they teach in those private schools, even if what they teach has no relationship to science reality. or full history or any type of reality. Yes. As, someone, as someone who, you know, took a creationism-based uh, biology course, I can, yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, I, I will say, I, this is, I, sorry, it's like, because, it, I mean, it's because it's actually, we talk about the, the evangelical right christian community you know, basically it's the white evangelical christian community if we're you know being specific but there are all also other groups that do this with their children because at one point i was reading um is an orthodox children uh orthodox jewish children's okay. book about animals hmm. and it had and it's like it has this lovely thing about you know the snake and this is what it, it's got like all reads like a standard reptile book then you have the line, and a snake has no legs because Hashem cursed them after the garden. And then it continues, and snakes shed their skin, and this is other things about snakes. So we have, like, there's various groups that evolve. They're doing religious education that is, you know, it's indoctrination. But then they claim the public schools are trying to indoctrinate their kids into things like multiculturalism and respecting people who are different right. as if and the the boogeyman of critical race theory um, yes yeah. like heaven for fend i know about the fact that slavery was actually a really bad thing i know about this 
I, I this is when I'm thankful I went to American public schools back in the 70s when they were being like super experimental about stuff. So we got we didn't just get black history during February. <laughs> Yeah, we had Harriet Tubman on the board and we had Booker T. Washington and we got taught some things. One of the things that we talked about, um, and like I mentioned it in the in the Time for All Ages, um, was, uh, you know, that that respecting autonomy, respecting um, uh, each person's ability to make a choice is is kind of core to to the UU identity. Um, And. So do you think, uh, you know, it, it feels to me, and I feel like in the message you talked about it, you know, why, why is this important to us as you use? Like, why is this an important thing well, for us to be concerned about and fighting? Well, there's a, few, there's a few different ones, because there is obviously, if you have the inherent worth and dignity of every person, it's really hard to have inherent dignity if somebody else is in charge of decisions about your body. Um, but we also have the principle of striving for justice and equity in human relations. And this is obviously an injustice in human relations. Um, there was actually uh, one I saw one minister connected it to the actually the interte- interdependent web because essentially our bodies are what connects us to the web because we are part of creation, we're part of the world. Mm-hmm. So anything that affects our bodies affects our ability Mm -hmm. to feel part and feel connected. And then also for those congregations that are using the eighth principle, bodily autonomy not only is going to have resonances for people who come from communities that have a history of already not having had bodily autonomy, whether it was through slave, I mentioned, you know, most specifically slavery during the reflection, and I referenced two other groups, but there is, you know, between some of the Asian communities experience either, you know, in Asia or here in the States where, you know, especially women did not have say over their bodies. You know, there's a lot of people who it's, you know, basically going to bring back, you know, sort of the historical trauma of their cultural backgrounds. And at the same time, when we, in the eighth principle, we talk about dismantling white supremacy. So much of about this controlling of pregnancy and controlling of bodies is also part of the same agenda that is the white supremacy, because it's about maintaining a white hegemony patriarchal system. And the people who are going to suffer the most are gonna be poor women, and that includes poor white women, but the health out, you know, we already have states with horrible health outcomes, especially for African-American women around maternity and pregnancy and it's all going to get worse with this so it's also a matter of fighting racial oppression and essentially it's retrenchment through the dismantling of Roe and how it will affect certain communities differently so obviously this all feels a little bit heavy and um you know we talked about like the uh, donating to the abortion fund you know, is there, obviously this is going to be a long fight. This is not going to be like something that 
just suddenly we're going to wake up tomorrow and uh, you know there, there may be stopgap solutions that could help tomorrow but um, what this is a long fight you know uh, as we were talking about and as you've kind of hinted at in this discussion this has been an agenda item for folk the for the right wing for 40 years um, that they've been thinking about how to do this and you know so on our end you know what does what does organizing against this look like well part of it is so like i i did lift us the right thankful new york state saw this coming and took the necessary steps to bolster our local laws um Actually, I don't know if you you've may not have heard the news, but California, Oregon, and Washington have announced a partnership where they're going to work as a collective of states to not only shore up access within their states, but then look at how they've got resources lined up. Essentially, how I would interpret it as to ensure as much access to people on the borders to help the people from the neighboring states be able to access uh, abortion within their state. Um, so just like I went to college in a town that was dry and the back wall of the first liquor store was at the town line. We may be entering one of those eras where you're gonna have certain, you know, it's not, cause it's not really just even about abortion. It's gonna be about birth control. It's gonna be about you know, you could have that the wall for either the Planned Parenthood or some other women's clinic, like at the state line. And some of it's going to be they're coming. They're going to come after the doctors and the nurses. So one thing I had been speaking one on one with someone, we need to start preparing, essentially like medical professionals, legal defense funds. Um, I was actually quite heartened. Um, so I'm at the VA and this will be, you know, this is actually a public statement, so I can say it. Um, they're setting up, and I'm sure other areas of the federal government that provide healthcare are doing this. They're setting up national standards for standards of care in each practice area. And if a state board or a state uh, legal entity should come after a medical practitioner for doing something that's part of the national standard in a federal facility, the Department of Justice will defend the medical professional. So that's, um, let's say the Biden administration putting uh, federal support behind the medical professionals in the federal system but it's going to like what we start doing, what we're going to start having to look at doing for the doctors and the nurses in the state and local facilities. Again, yes, we already had the, the, the one woman who had an ectopic pregnancy rupture while the doctors were talking to lawyers instead of doing what needed to be done. Um, we need to make it as safe as we can for the the doctors and nurses to do what they need to do, but those who are in positions are going to have to sit there and and look at this. And it's yeah, this is what civil disobedience may be for. There may be times where something we have to do was going to be against one of those state laws. And you know, it's always the you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, if 
you know, if we condemn the other side for breaking the law to get to their ends, why is it okay for us to break the law to achieve our ends? And it's like, you have to believe in the justice of your cause and, and just know that there's a difference between, you know, because again, the, the, the women and men who've been standing outside abortion clinics for decades now yelling at women who are just going into a clinic, even they're just going in, you know, for an annual physical, <laughs> you know, they're, they've been acting their conscience, but, you know, the time is going to, you know, you have to figure out what can you do? Is it, you know, I was talking with someone, it's like where we are in New York state, it's not going to make sense for us to drive to Oklahoma and drive someone somewhere. Right. But we can give money to somebody who can do that, but we can also look around locally and see what are the things we can do to help. And, and it's just, it's going to be hard. The, I did speak with someone after the service and things like postcarding, anything to drive turnout and get the people elected who will vote for the things we want and state level too. Cause again, we can take back those, you know, it's not, doesn't have to be a domino to the bottom on abortion rights in the States. Right. You know, people went after Governor Cuomo, Cuomo when he signed the new New York ones, cause they called it, you know, abortion on demand up to and including during delivery, which of course it's not. Um, that's one of those lies they tell. Um, but other states can do the same thing. We could have a federal uh, legislation. Doesn't mean the court won't go after it unless we do something with the court, but it's just taking the political process seriously, doing what everybody can, stay engaged and know it's not over. And it hopefully it won't take us 40 years because we got more people on our side. It takes 40 years to make the country do something that most of the people don't want. Right. If most of the people want it, it's a lot easier to get it done. It's true. Let's, let's that's, believe. That's the hope. Most yes. of the people really do believe in want us. women to be able to, uh, women and anybody else who might be pregnant to be able to make these decisions because it's not just women. But. Oh, most certainly. Well, Reverend Beth, I thank you so much for holding the space on this topic, especially after, you know, these, these challenging uh, days since the decision. So thank you so much for sharing today and for just holding space for all of us to, you know, think and process through all of this. Oh, you're welcome. This is one of those, I, I had mentioned her during the sermon, but I was raised by a mom who she was not a super political person, but she, you know, she marched in New York for legal access to abortion, partially because of her own experience when she was a nursing student and the things that in the time before Roe, people who were desperate would come and ask for. And so she was always very determined that everybody should have access to safe medical care that they need. And we got to make that much more true because even, even under, even before the fall of Roe, they have been eroding it at the state level for decades now. And so there was still a fight happening. Right. It's just much clearer what that fight is. 
Definitely. And we'll fight it. We'll fight it. So thank you so much, Reverend Beth, for sitting down with me. Oh, you're so welcome, Amber, and so glad to get to hear a little bit more about your story, too. <laughs> and thanks, of course, to all of our listeners. <laughs>